Now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Emily Bazar. Emily is a senior writer for the California Healthcare Foundation Center for Health Reporting, where she covers health reform, children's health, Medicare, and limitations in mental health care. Prior to joining the Center for Health Reporting, Ms. Bazar was a national reporter for USA Today. Her first journalism job was at the Sacramento Bee. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Emily Bazar. Thank you, everybody, and thank you for coming tonight. I'd like to start by giving you a brief introduction to our panelists. Sitting right next to me is Francisca Angulo-Olais. She is a research scientist at the Center for Research on Adolescent Health and Development. Her expertise is in Latina health and sexuality, mm -hmm. and she's currently working with Planned Parenthood Los Angeles to create a uh, sexuality curriculum for high school students. And next to her is Mark Regneris. Mark is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin, and his research areas include uh, sexual behavior, family, and religion. And he has some exciting news. He has a book that just came out a couple of days ago, and it's called Premarital Sex in America. And next to him is Connie Cruzan. Connie is director of adolescent services at the Valley Community Clinic in North Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And she, uh, while she was there, she created the Valley Teen Clinic, which is a clinic that is run by and for teenagers. She might talk a little bit more about that. So before I, I turn this over to the real experts here, I just want to throw out a few uh, numbers, just to give you some context for the discussion. Um, so we're talking about California's teen birth rate. And since 1991, California's had a pretty significant, or seen a pretty significant drop in its teen birth rate. In 91, uh, there were 70.9 births to, uh, per 1,000 California moms age, ages 15 to 19, am I right? Mm -hmm. And by 2008, which is the latest year uh, that we have data for, that went down to 35.2 births per 1,000. So it's gone down by half, which is a record low, as I understand it. Um, so by comparison, nationally, the, number, the rate has also gone down nationally, but not by as much. Uh, in the US, teen birth rates have gone down by a third, approximately. There's some interesting real numbers that go along with this. So in 2008, there were teen moms gave birth to 51,704 babies in California in 2008. Now, did, did you pass out? Some of you have some pamphlets, some brochures yeah, that Francisca fine. gave out that um, give this really amazing statistic that had the birth rate not changed, had California had the same birth rate in 2008 as it had in 1991, there would have been an additional 52,685 babies born to teen moms in 2008 in California. Anybody want to take a guess of which county had the highest teen birth rate in California? It was Kern County in the Central Valley. And the lowest, Marin, Marin County. One more thing that's I'm sure to come up in our discussion here is I wanted to bring up a little bit about the ethnic breakdowns of the, the teen um, birth rate. Uh, Latina teens uh, account for almost three quarters of the births to teen moms in California in 2008. They have the highest birth rate of the ethnic groups, followed by African Americans, and then uh, whites and Asian Americans. I'm missing Native Americans. I can't remember where they fall. I'm sorry. While they have the highest 
the reduction in the birth rate among Latinas is also driving down the overall birth rate in the state, and I'm sure the panelists are going to discuss that a little bit. So let me turn it over to them. I've, I've asked them to, for a couple of minutes each, answer the question from their perspective, what is California doing right? So why don't we start with Francisca? Well, I would say um, one thing is that they've invested. There's been investment in you know, sexuality or sex education in the state. Um, they're also California's refusal to take Title V funding, which is abstinence-only programming. They've refused it. They've been the only state to refuse it um, consistently, um, therefore giving them, you know, greater opportunity to try out different programs, you know, that are much broader, you know, not just sex ed, but sexuality education, you know, and so there's several um, curriculums out there that California's trying, and for example, you know, Planned Parenthood is trying to create one, and, you know, so that we can address um, teen, you know, pregnancy from different perspectives, not just, um, you know, you know, try to do it from a socioeconomic perspective, try to do it from a culture perspective, but at least they're trying different things. I tend to think that when you look at a rate like California is going down and you see the national rate go down too, I would look in, instead of sort of at, at educational curriculums and things like that, which can be very helpful, but sort of what is going on nationally and why is California just a little bit more intensive uh, in, in the uptake of some of this? And I think when you're talking about uh, Latina teens, we're, I don't think it's that they're delaying sex longer. I don't think um, that the abortion rate among them has, has increased. So I think what you're talking about is a, um, an uptake in contraception. Um, there, more of them are on birth control than they used to be. So the, to get at like, what is driving this change, you want to answer the question, why are more Latinas taking contraception today, and then maybe you get into the question of, of education. But if you look again at the national level, you s still see this shift downwards across the board. So I wonder at more of a, a cultural level uh, if the meaning of sex has shifted, not in 10 years or 20, but um, over uh, the last, say, 50 years. Uh, I mean, the pill has been around for 50 years, but. Has, uh, has there been a shift in sort of the, the meaning of sex and the meaning and purpose of relationships uh, away from a more sort of family-oriented procreation thing to uh, a sort of a more recreational approach to sex? And I mean, this is California, so automatically you think, yeah, well, it's, it's, it, it would be more on the recreational side here. This is, you know, <laughs> trendsetter. But also, if you look globally, um, uh, countries in Western Europe, um, very much so, uh, demographers call this the second demographic transition, where um, we've now, uh, our death rates are low, our birth rates are low, and we've accomplished full control over fertility. We, we can. We don't necessarily do that. I mean, when you look in the United States, um, uh, compared to, say, Holland or um, France, the percentage of kids who are kids, meaning 15, 16 year olds who are on birth control, is much lower than in, in Europe. But I think California and the Northeast and the Northwest are tracking in that direction. So the question is why are more kids uh, than ever before on birth control? What have you found? No, I mean, I think they, the, the answer would be this sort of shifting uh, mentality about. Mm -hmm the purpose of sex, mm -hmm. I think, and the shifting importance of higher education. I mean, we see college used to be the domain of men 60, 70 years ago, and now 
we're pushing 57, 58% of college students are women. So the whole thing has, has, has swung around. And, and um, so I tend to think that questions about fertility are wrapped up in questions about family and education and future. And so you see all these sort of cohabitation rates, fertility rates, teen pregnancy rates, um, religiosity rates. They sort of they go together. Connie? Well, dovetailing with the perfect storm, <laughs> we have, um, you know, since 92, we've had multiple layers of teen pregnancy prevention here in the state. We've had bipartisan support. We've had two Republican administrations and one Democratic administration who have supported and, and put money towards meaningful uh, teen pregnancy prevention programs. We have had uh, not just federal and state money, but we've had private foundation money that has really supported creative programs and evaluation efforts. And we have the Family Pact program, which offers uh, medical access to, clinical access to people 12 and older who are 200%, up to 200% of the poverty, um, federal poverty level. And when a teen walks into a clinic um, or a doctor's office who provides, who is a Family Pact provider, they're able to be consented or certified on the spot. They receive a family packed card and receive services immediately. And it pays for all of their reproductive health. It pays for birth control methods, pelvic exams, pap smears, STDs testing and treatment, HIV testing. I mean, it's very global with what it'll cover. And so you have sort of family pact as the foundation for all of these other efforts that have been going on. You've got, uh, you've got street outreach, beach outreach, you've got educational programs in the schools. You have legislation, state, the state has legislated that if you're going to be teaching sex education in the schools, it must be medically accurate. And the state already the, the state learned their lesson back in the early 90s about abstinence-only programs. There was a program called Enable, and it was an abstinence-only program for 12 to 14-year-olds. After about two or three years of that, they, they were looking at, at the statistics and the data, and what they were finding was this wasn't working. So they pulled the plug on the program, and that was instrumental in California not going for the federal abstinence-only money because we knew it was a waste of time and money. Is California alone in, in uh, turning down the abstinence-only money? Initially it was, yes. But not anymore? Uh, there, I don't believe there's much abstinence-only money out oh. there. The Obama administration <laughs> Things have changed, changed a little bit. Yes. <laughs> they, changed. They, they weren't the only ones who had, I mean, who denied taking it. Offhand, I can't remember what other states, but there were, yeah, they were, were always sort of the figurehead. Yeah. So if I, I heard you correctly, to distill a little bit, it sounds like, Mark, you may be putting a little bit more emphasis on cultural and social changes, especially mm -hmm. among immigrant families, correct? Yes. What do you guys, uh, and, and, and Francisca and Connie, very, um, you believe in the power of these programs um, mm -hmm. um, as the primary factor in reducing the rate, it sounds like, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think about the idea that the social and, and, and cultural changes may be the, how, how big of, of, a, of, a, of a driver is that from your perspective? For reducing? Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, culture always definitely plays a, a role in how people perceive and understand their own sexuality. Um, but I think that um, just as important are socioeconomic factors, access to health care, right, access to contraceptive use. 
And so we have to understand those and how culture plays a part in how a young woman, uh, perhaps a young Latina, understands their ability to access something like that or not. And um, so I think that a lot of the programs, you know, because they are kind of more broader, some programs are, at least anyway, sexuality, they talk about, you know, gender issues, they talk about teen rights, and they really give, you know, or empower young Latinas to try to access those, those, those resources, you know. Um, but I think it definitely helps having the federal funding, as Connie was saying, you know, to, you know, that they're there, and, but, you know, a lot more needs to be done, I think, um, at least on the level of um, funding and having access, you know, having more um, clinics in these low-income communities so that they can access. Um, culturally, though, sure, it's important. I mean, I think along my work, um, what I was seeing a big issue was this issue around virginity and what it means to be a virgin and, um, you know, how they understood that in terms of their value as women, you know. Um, what it means to carry condoms, right? If a young lady carries condoms in her purse and she's in, you know, usually junior high or high school and if someone else sees it, they're, oh, you're a slut. Well, nobody wants to be considered that, you know, and so maybe they're less likely to carry the condoms or use them, you know. So they're, they're you know, and how, again, young, and this is not just young Latinas, I think how young women perceive themselves as uh, sexual beings, you know, and having a healthy sexuality, a sense of sexuality is just as important. Do you, on the ground, do you see that the education directly relates to increased use of the condoms and women and the girls being carrying them around more and, and yeah. that sort of thing? Yeah, that was part of the evaluation of our program because we have a multi-layered program where we have health educators who actually go out into the public high schools. And um, then they the teens will learn about the clinical services from them. They come to us and then we have a, a phone follow-up program where we contact them about a month after their visit just to check in and see how they're doing. And when we were evaluated, the more points of contact they had, including a clinical visit, the lower the pregnancy rate was. Um, so it, it, you know, it doesn't have to be our clinic, it can be any, any clinic that's near and to, to them and that they feel safe with going to. Um, one of the other things too is the, the part of the, the, in the 90s there was this big, there was a big media campaign with the state and the California Wellness Foundation and they weren't just targeting teens. I remember one of the posters that, that came out said that teen pregnancy is an adult problem, right. you know, and they had ads in the papers, they had billboards, I mean it was everywhere and it was, it was really in everybody's faces and it, it, it created a dialogue and it became a part of the landscape. And I think you can't discount that because that impacted the adults who were the parents and the people who were working with the kids in the schools. One of the things I, I noticed is that uh, the uptake of birth control seems to happen later in the teenage years and, and even into uh, sort of the early 20s. Um, when I was analyzing teen behavior, the difference between sort of use of uh, contraception at first sex and last sex was only a handful, you know, three or four percentage points difference. Uh, what do you see in terms of, I mean, when do kids, I keep calling, kids, there's anybody who's younger than me, I think. <laughs> um, when do teenagers uh, reliably get on contraception in California? Um, I mean, it, the American 15-year-olds, 11% of them uh, are on contraception, you know, far below the, the nearly 50% plus in some parts of Western Europe. At age 15, they're 50% yeah, are on the uh, pill? I, I, I was 
surprised. Wow. Yeah. So, so one of these things, what's California doing right? It's also this sort of sense of, wow, we are really becoming more like Europe. And sometimes even what Europe does can shock us. I mean, because we are more culturally conservative, even in California, than, and than plenty of countries in Western and Northern Europe. Does that surprise you guys that 50% of 15-year-olds in Europe, or, or in, where did you say? This was in uh, the, the Netherlands. Netherlands. I think it was oh. higher. Oh, okay. On the pill? No? Yeah. No, that's not surprising, because Europe tends to have, you know, a more a liberal sense of sexuality. Right. Mm-hmm. And do you guys know offhand, I've seen it somewhere, but I don't know the number, what the teen birth rate, so here our birth rate now is, teen birth rate is 35.2 per right. thousand. What is sure. it in, in the Western uh, European nations? Uh, much, much lower, much right? Lower, so yeah. we keep looking at Europe as like having done all these things right. And I, I, I want to stop short of saying I want to become like Europe. Um, uh, but we, it, it, there are parts of America that are looking more European and there are parts of America that are not and uh, and and proudly not basically yeah, right. you know mm-hmm. uh, so it, it's California is a microcosm of the way America is moving but plenty of American states and regions aren't nearly so quick to uptake this the reason I think I, I downgrade or downplay education is not because I don't like it or I don't think it's important but we look at the, the, the birth rate and teenage birth rate, pregnancy rate going down across the board, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some states slower than others. So something is happening across the country, not just sort of what's California doing that all these other states aren't doing. Um, and sort of uh, the, uh, um, about comprehensive sex ed, and we're not taking any federal money from, um, for the absence of only education. Uh, the rates for most states, including California, went down from 2000 to 2006. There was this uptick in 2006, which I, I mean, we remember was immediately blamed on the absence-only education. And I just would, I mean, I was skeptical at, at, at first glance that, oh, that this, this uptick of a percentage point or two would have been um, blamed and hung on, um, on this, this, this policy, even though... Uh, I mean, I'm a fan of comprehensive sex ed, but I, sometimes I think that the greater, the, the, the more influential stuff is happening at sort of a cultural level, a media level, a life chances, future orientation kind of level. So let me ask you about Texas in that sure. case. Yep. Um, isn't Texas have one of the highest mm-hmm. teen birth rates, right? Right, right. And like 47th, I think, out of... 50. Oh, really? Right. Okay, so Texas has one of the highest teen mm-hmm. birth rates. It also has, okay, I mean, I'll take great liberties here to say sure. somewhat, some demographic similarities to California. Absolutely. With long, uh, multi-generational immigrant <laughs> families where you would see mm-hmm. some of what you're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, um, the Americanization, more condom use, this sort of thing, right? Right. So what right. accounts then for the difference is between California's birth mm-hmm. rate and Texas's birth mm-hmm. rate? That's an excellent question. Uh, I, I think that there are several aspects to, to, to answering that question. Um, number one, Texas's rate has gone down, um, just not as precipitously as, as California's has. Texas is a more culturally conservative state so Latinos on average, Latinos uh, would be more culturally conservative in Texas than on average in California. And I think that that's, we discount that uh, at our peril. Um, another factor is 
fast forward to when somebody uh, gets pregnant, what are they you know, going to do? And the cost of living in California is just heads and tails higher than in Texas, uh, including the largest cities in Texas. So I, th I, th I th the, the share of, of uh, pregnancies, teen pregnancies that end in ab abortion in California, according to Guttmacher, is 40%, whereas in te Texas it's 17%. Right? So I think some of this is partly because um, life chances seem more threatened in California with a teenage birth than I think they do in Texas, in part because it's, it's a, a less expensive place to live. I think people sort of think, well, we can handle this, we can do this. Whereas I think in California there's, there's more of an immediate sense of threat to how are we going to make it? It is so expensive here, etc. So it's a part cultural answer, um, but I do think you know, kids aren't as well sex ed educated in Texas as they are here, and I wish that was not the case. Um, but I'm hesitant to, to sort of pin it all on, oh, our sex ed is so much poorer. Connie or Francisca, you wanna take that on at all, or? I, well, I can say at my clinic when we have teens who become pregnant, they're not usually thinking about the economics of it, um, but their parents are. Exactly. Yeah, but their parents right. do. Right. But, you know, you can't force somebody to have an abortion. I mean, sure. there's no abortion provider here in the state who would, who would do an abortion that, it, that the teen didn't want themselves right. because, right. just because the parent did. I mean, there's far I, more providers, abortion providers in California than in Texas yeah. for a state of comparable size. So yeah. some of it's about, some of that, that difference in abortion rates is access. Yeah. But also, I think also there, California there's, there's a, subsidizes it too. Okay, I mean, California, right. if a teenager in California right. is pregnant and wants an abortion, she can apply for a program that will pay for it. Gotcha. And so, in Texas cost that's just is not going to happen. Cost is not an <laughs> yeah. issue for right. teenagers who want right. who choose abortion. That's right. Interesting. Mm -hmm. that's interesting. So there may be access on several levels. Sure. More providers and and um, you know, economic. Right, because some of the, the, the states that have, where teen pregnancies in an abortion the most are some of the most expensive places to live. New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, California. Um, so I'm not pinning all this on, on abortion and differences between Texas and California, but some of it does have to do with sort of how are we gonna make it? And I think, especially at the level of parents, I think there is the sense of uh, we, can, we can do this when it's a little bit less expensive cost uh, of living. Um, That's interesting. But you know, Texas is more culturally conservative as well than California, and so it's, it's an answer that fewer people would consider there. So, I'm, I'm, but I wanna give education its, its due. I mean, my intro sociology students at the University of Texas I mean, complain about how bad the sex ed is. Any thoughts? No, I mean, I just think, um, I mean, definitely, if you, if you look at culture in that broad sense, yeah, definitely Texas is much more conservative, for sure. Um, but again, California has, has gone out of its way to fund these programs. Um, but I think you, we have to remember that as, although our teen rates have dropped and we are, we're doing a lot in California, there's so much more work to be done. And I think especially when you look at uh, communities of color and their access. Even though we have a lot of access here, there's still yet more that we need to mm -hmm. provide in terms of access. 
So I think, you know, it, it's not, you know, education plays its part, access plays a part, culture plays a part. And I think a common, it's never just one factor, right. it's multiple factors that have helped to bring and to reduce the, you know, the rates, but we still need a lot more work to be done. Access to what? Well, to, uh, well, health insurance, mm -hmm. access to clinics, right. you know, access to uh, contraceptives, you know, anything from the pill to, um, you know, condoms. So there's, you know, a lot of different reproductive health services. And in some of the, the really impoverished areas, it's, it can be very difficult for a teen to go to a clinic that's pretty relatively close to them mm -hmm. because, because of gang affiliation. I mean, we have teens who can't come across the valley to where we're at because we're located in a fairly neutral area, but they can't cross those lines. Wow. And it's, it's too dangerous for them. In your area, are you... What kind of access is there to, to the services that you provide? Are you the only ones within a certain... No, reserve? there are other providers. There, there are other providers in the Valley. I mean, it, it, we're known to be a teen-friendly clinic because it's a peer-run clinic, so we're the only peer-run clinic in the Valley. But there are other good providers out there, other good clinics, and Family Pact also has um, uh, private providers which are much less well known because they don't have the you know they don't have they don't market their 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 services and what do you no, mean? they're not really looking for teens as patients what do you mean it's a teen run clinic what do the teens do we we have teens who we hire and train and become certified community health workers and um, they run the clinic you know the receptionist is a teen they answer the phones they certify the teens for family packed they prepare the charts, they uh, do the medical intake, they consent the patients for services, they consent them for uh, birth control methods, they do their vital signs, they do the chief complaint, they prepare everything right before the clinician sees the patient. And, um, you know, our staff range in the age right now, we've got 15 to 19. And that makes you think that teens are more willing to come to a clinic when they're seeing their peers? Developmentally, they're more likely to listen to somebody their own age when they're talking about sex than, than somebody who looks like me. <laughs> Are you taking that into account at all while you're, as you're developing this curriculum? or? Well, um, well, we, no, we don't have teens de um, deliver the curriculum, actually, so it, it is adults. Um, but one of the things that we, too, we try to do is at least talk about issues that our teens are experiencing now. So talk about, you know, the violence in relationships, you know. Um, talk about what rights they do have in a relationship, you know. Um, you know, like the right to say no if they don't want to have sex or, you know, um, the right to make decisions for themselves in a relationship, you know, because oftentimes Latinas, or not even Latinas, but, you know, young people in general have a really hard time in relationships. You know, they're very complicated, they're very intense, and so we try to, you know, help them kind of figure out some strategies and, you know, how to communicate and things like that, you know, apart from the anatomy and things like that, but, and talk about gender, how, you know, how young men and young women kind of understand things differently and perhaps how they go about things differently and how they may affect, you know, their decision-making around um, sex, you know, and, um, and also just sexuality in general, you know. So it's kind of holistic. It's not just targeted at the, as you say, Yeah, just not anatomy. And things yes, like exactly. That. So we haven't talked a whole lot about men here and, and, <laughs> That's and boys. That's a good point. <laughs> I'd like to hear from both of you about sort of what is the role of um, adolescent boys and young adult males in this. Um, 
there's a lot of talk about empowering women, etc. Mm -hmm. So where where are the boys? They're working in my clinic right now. <laughs> All right, good for you. <laughs> yeah, we have. Uh, I think we've got four teen males out of twelve. We've got a staff of about twelve right now, and we've got four guys, uh, fifteen, sixteen, uh, to up to nineteen. But in terms of, uh, but are they are the boys asking for condoms as much as the girls are coming in? Is that what, what you're? Yeah, in terms of sort of the responsibility. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I study young adult sexual behavior now, and and it's it's impressed me that sort of women are the responsibility takers, and uh, and and that hasn't changed a whole lot over time. That's um, a good point. You see, so as the teen pregnancy rates diminish, to me that shouts that well. More women are taking responsibility for contraception because men generally don't do that, you know, and and, and generally prefer not to. So, uh, what do you unless see? I'm, unless I'm mistaken, I, I, we have a we have it set up with our health educators that we tell about teens in the classrooms that if you just want a bag of condoms, all you have to do is go to the front desk at Teen Clinic and ask for a bag. And there will be no questions asked. And we have the drawer with the bags. And the majority of the people who come in and ask for bags are guys. But we do have a number of girls who do too. And everybody gets a bag when they leave. <laughs> um, and we do, see, we do see a lot of guys who come to the clinic who want to get checked. Um, it's gratifying when you see a couple who haven't become sexually active yet. And they come in together and they're like, we want to just make sure everything is a clean slate before we... Are together and we do have that happen and it's it's it is gratifying to see that you know and we, we've we've worked with with teen guys and worked with them in, in a different manner than the classroom setting and you know they want to know they want to know how everything works they, they want to know how the pill works they, they're just they're very interested that a lot I think the dialogue hasn't always been opened up and they sure. haven't been asked and um, California had a male involvement program um, that, that was funded by the state, and it was very successful, and it was a very meaningful program, and the funding was, it was defunded in uh, 2008 because of the budget crisis. Well, actually, that's really a good sad. segue, yeah. I wanted to ask you guys about that. Um, things are, California's doing well, but we're in a pretty unprecedented budget crisis right now. What is the outlook for um, these programs, given what's going on fiscally? Are you guys optimistic or, or <laughs> what, realistic? I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I think we're optimistic. I mean, it, it still needs a lot of work. And unfortunately, yeah, a lot of programs have been defunded. Uh, but we're still, we haven't cut up, you know, back on everything. You know, so we're still funding quite a bit of few programs, but of course more funding still needs to be done, you know, with Medi-Cal, Medicaid, on, you know, other programs. But, um, and also there's a lot of, um, you know, foundations that are coming into play, a lot of organizations, you know, grassroots at the grassroots level that really are, are taking part in the communities and saying this is what needs to happen. You know, so you don't find communities waiting necessarily. Of course it helps to have federal funding, but they're, they're not necessarily <laughs> waiting. Um, they're doing these things themselves. But there's more competition, you were telling me, right, Connie? Yeah, because, because you've had their information education programs that were, have been funded in California since 1973, and they've had many, many cuts to the program. Um, they haven't defunded the program, but it's hanging on by a thread. They just issued the new RFA for that. Uh, I believe it was last week. The uh, uh, community challenge grants 
have been reissued, um, but with a tighter focus instead of a broader uh, regional impact with your, your program. They're asking you to work within a very small medical study service area. Who funds so those? The state does. The state exclusively? It's, it's TANF money. It's federal money that comes to the state, and then the state redistributes it. Um, and then there's their federal dollars that were just, you know, recently awarded. And California got a lot of that money, which was heartening to see. But a, a lot of the foundations took a big, big hit during the stock, stock market crisis and then the Madoff scandal. A lot of them had to close their doors and really cut back on what they could do. So, you know, as the economy slowly goes back up, I mean, they'll be able to do more again. But it's, you know, it's a slow crawl right now. And, you know, and, and, and foundations change their focus, too, you know. And California is facing, what, a 25? 26 billion dollars. Last I heard. <laughs> right. Um, so Changes daily. I'm just, yeah, I was just, uh, you're an optim optimistic nonetheless, huh? So, is California, I mean, I, I don't know enough about it. Are they allowed to operate with a budget deficit? <laughs> you got the answer right there. <laughs> I think this like was the, the, US, yeah. the record latest budget we had this year. I don't remember exactly what date it came in, but it was, yeah. Gotcha. Every two, I mean, the, the Texas legislature only meets every two years for a five-month period, and it's primarily about budget setting, and it's a constitutional stipulation that the budget has to be balanced. And so, I mean, the, the, the lean times are super lean, and the, the great times aren't all that great I mean, in yeah. terms of uh, state spending on programs like this. But do you guys feel like you're going to have to go and start knocking on some doors in Sacramento or, or not yet? We always do. Yeah. You always yeah. do anyway. Will it fall on deaf ears? No, I, I, not necessarily. I mean, there's definitely there are a lot of youth advocates out there mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, but it's but it's a constant. You you do have to knock on doors. You have to persuade people. You have to get them involved. And in, you know, and and that you know, sexuality in general, you know, sexual education benefits everybody. You know, healthy relationships benefit everybody. You know, you have. It's like you're always with 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 teen patients. You're always recreating yourself because new generation of teens is constantly new people are moving into their teens and they're moving out mm -hmm. into their twenties, and yeah. you you have that with the legislators too, yeah. because of term limits. Yeah. So you're you know constantly reintroducing yourselves to them and familiarizing them with your your what you're doing with your work. We have less than five minutes left. Left. Does anybody? Do you guys want to make a kind of final uh, a statement, or is there anything that? Uh, you didn't get to discuss in our discussion time that you'd like to bring up? Go for it. What? <laughs> we were talking about sort of the budget crisis, et cetera, and what programs will be funded, defunded, et cetera. Um, but I still think this sort of the, the arc of teen pregnancy has been going down mm -hmm. since 19, what, early 70s, I think, if I'm not, or 90s, early 90s. Um, uh, and it was an uptick in 2006, 2007, but uh, I don't expect that to, to continue. I mean, I really, really are, in my best guess, nationally tracking towards um, this tighter control of fertility, um, which raises questions about are we controlling it too much? I mean, we're talking about teen pregnancy, nobody wants a 15-year-old or 16-year-old to be pregnant, um, but we're also looking at sort of fertility rate in the United States barely at um, um, 
replacement value right. in, in Western Europe. Uh, certain countries are just well under that, right? right? And so we, we have a, a vibrant uh, immigrant tradition in the United States, which is very helpful. Um, but it raises the question of sort of, what if we're too successful at this, right? What if, uh, because as you see, teen fertility or teen pregnancy rates go down, you're also seeing national fertility rates uh, diminish. So I tend to think it's all part of this master um, blob of, 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 of values that are sort of moving away from um, larger families to two or one or zero, um, moving away from marriage slowly, but surely, I mean, there are fewer people married today than, uh, than used to. So one of the things I always watch when, when we look at sort of what is, what's going right in California, I always wonder, like, okay, and do we really, I mean, do we want it to keep going in that direction? What are the, what are the um, trade-offs that we're making for this kind of a shift, right? Um, more people are going to college, et cetera. Uh, at, at the same time, you're getting people who are leaving college who there isn't enough jobs, at least not right now. Will our economy make a recovery such that our unemployment rate would diminish from 10 to 6? I don't know. So I mean, it, it raises a lot of interesting sort of future-oriented questions, mm -hmm. not just about funding or programs, mm -hmm. but about what's the rate going to look like in 10 years or 20 years? Well, I think, but I think also because we do have such, at least in the Southwest, we have we do have large immigrant communities. I don't think, at least I don't see a fear of not our families not being important anymore, or you know. Um, but it's if anything, and maybe it like you were saying, it provides greater opportunities for better jobs, more education, you know. Um, but I think because we're so close to the border, you know, um, I think that those values will still be very strong and in a lot of, not just Latino communities, but I think in other immigrant communities as well. So it'll be, I think, um, a long time before we go to zero or one child. Well, it'll never get to zero or one, uh, or we won't be around to see it. My, my concern is that the economy is where we're going to see a spike. Um, we saw an up. I don't have the, the numbers to show it, but we saw an uptick in teen pregnancy this summer. And I, I think part of it was unique to Los Angeles, and part of it was economical, the, the, the horrible economic climate we're in. Um, you know, teenagers couldn't find jobs. They just can't find, it's di very difficult to find jobs other than maybe seasonal jobs like right now. Um, because, you know, you go to McDonald's and Starbucks and it's people who look like your grandmother working there. and. Um, you know, in, Cal in Los Angeles, the LAUSD went from a year-round track system, and this summer it went to a calendar system. So that there were no jobs for teens this summer, and the after-school programs were have been cut. The uh, there was no summer school. The intercessions were not there. They were only there for the students who were failing. So you know, and their parents are working their butts off to keep food on the table. So who's What's going to happen? You know, there's result. no meaningful activity for them. Need yeah. more video games. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> uh, thank you guys very much. I think we're going to start the Q and A. I was wondering what the, your three opinions are about having health education as a mandated graduation requirement versus putting health in another class because usually health is where they get the sex education portion mm -hmm. of their education. I think that what we've seen um, with in creating this curriculum that um, 
the the guys have as much interest in anatomy and you know birth control and, and yeah. pregnancy. They have so many questions about pregnancy sometimes more than than the young ladies do. And I think it's really important, you know, as part of getting involved and talk about having a healthy sexuality to get both all the young, you know, young men and young women involved in, you know, what it means to be a sexually active teen. And I think that th that really doesn't happen when you're having, well, I mean, it does happen, but very limited when you have outside organizations coming into school and doing, you know, however many sessions. Um, sometimes, you know, in between an, an, an advisory class or part of a health class or in a math class or a PE class, rather than really talking about how your bodies work. Um, and I know, of course, this is not going to be talked about maybe, you know, until we're like Europe, but, you know, the pleasure of sexuality, you know, that's always a very taboo topic, you know, but really talking about it. And I think you, you, and you can't get there unless you talk about some of the basics, you know, and something that's long term, that it isn't just a quick, you know introduction or three sessions or whatever. And I think it's something that's uniquely, the health teachers are, 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 are trained to, to work with the teens on these subjects, unlike the biology teachers, you know, where they're just, you know, it's just the facts, ma'am. You know, yeah. parts is parts. So um, I think health teachers are really, really important. They're, for us, they've really been the key to the public school system. I run mentoring programs. We have about 500 or so young people at any given time in our programs. And there's a phenomenon that we've noticed, and I wanted to know if, the, if there's any information, further information you have about that. Um, over the past 10 years, I've had the opportunity to interview dozens of young ladies who have become you know, pregnant as teenagers. And there's one, in, with only one exception, there's one statement that is common to every single one of the Latinas that we talk about. As soon as I had my baby, I was respected more in my family. Mm -hmm. My mom and dad and I get along better. I mean, it, it's clearly, and when I go visit their houses uh, at other times, um, it's, it's, they're obviously like the low man on the totem pole in, in the family. I mean, it's, it's just clear, you can't deny it. You see it happening. And then once they become a mother, it's like they leap to the top, uh, you know, culturally. So mm -hmm. it's an amazing phenomenon that we've noticed that I haven't seen it written about or spoken about anywhere else. Um, and the second part of that is, is um, I've seen a couple of studies that match our experience when you get a mentor for um, not just the Latinas, but any young lady that the teen pregnancy rates um, go down tremendously. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering if there's any empirical information on that that you guys are aware of, because um, these are things that I've been looking to get, you know, a broader, you know, verification on. Uh, but it's such a clear phenomenon that we see. I tend to, to think a lot in terms of what are the master narratives that guide people's behavior, and uh, because I think at bottom people are are story followers, and so what you're talking about is sort of the story of what is family and when it should happen and what it means and what is the value placed on motherhood and fatherhood and things like that. Um, in some ways, it strikes me that uh, Hispanic Americans are, are what most Americans used to be. You know, they, they married early, they had children early, they had more children, and... Um, in, in some ways, we've moved, most of America has moved away from this, 
And so now we look back and say, now, well, why, why do they still hold on to this narrative, right? So without wanting to praise that narrative, I do think there are praiseworthy things in it. And uh, you know, valuing motherhood is, is a good thing, etc. We just sort of, we'd like to add, you know, delay the, the, the first child a little bit, you know, add on uh, education and things like that. But really, I mean, we are talking about competing narratives about what is the good life and what is the point of my life and what should I want to become and do. And, and you're telling us uh, accurately, I suspect, that, that the, sort of the, the value of children and parenting is, is pretty central to, uh, to, this, to this cultural narrative. It's, it, they're, they're in the social order, they're, they're very low. Um, but then once they become a mother, um, they shoot to the top almost. They're the most revered member of the family. Right. You get that just among Latinos. I think you get that in the broader um, American culture. You know, I mean, what do most people think of a childless woman? You know, uh, you know when, when she's, you know, oh, she's just part of her, she just wants her career. She's selfish. Even in American culture, uh, you know, a woman without a child is not very valued. And so you get that on top of, you know, what Latinas perhaps what are some of their things you know, that are going there culturally? Then it's, maybe it's a double whammy. I think women um, are valued in, as in, in Latino culture. Um, and, but a lot of my work really looks to uh, Latinas as virgins are valued. Okay? And, but motherhood um, is valued very much so, you know, of course. And I, and I think that just it's reflecting the broader, the social norms about motherhood in general. Um, but, I mean, you know, being a single woman, um, and I think, you know, across all cultures, and a single woman who's, you know, wants to exercise that sexual, that her broad sexuality, or just, you know, I mean, is never going to be valued. And I think, and it, so Latinas is just reflecting that larger, I think. And perhaps in some ways it's, it's more intense, um, but it's, it's still reflecting broader cultural values. Even in the broader culture, if you look at any of the v- music videos, really, can we all walk away saying, oh, yeah, women, yes, power. You know, no, it, you, you don't think that. You know? So it's the broader message uh, w- about women in this culture isn't very positive. Um, and then your work on top of that, you've got your, you have a minority status or low income. You know, it gets a lot harder. Do you think that the decrease in teen pregnancies are also attributed to the different types of birth control that are available? You know, remembering to take the pill is a big responsibility, but every time you turn a channel, there's like the NuvaRing, and there's the diff- a new IUD that's plastic now, and you know, there's all of these things where you don't necessarily have to remember. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, teens get these extra benefits. Now it's not only you know, preventing pregnancy, but now it helps you with acne and it helps you with all of these different things, the way that they're marketing it. It has more of a benefit to the teens, so they're more likely to take it or want to get it. When there's a new ad campaign for a new method, we, that's what all the clinicians hear. It's like, oh, I heard it'll clean up, clear up my skin, you know. Um, but there, you know, we, the Implanon is, is, we're doing a lot of Implanon in our clinic, and it's a long-term reversible uh, method. It's a, an implant that you put in the arm, and it's good for three years. And uh, unlike Norplant, which was five years and five tubes, and it was crazy. Um, and so we're seeing teens who, who want that because, they, you know, they, they realize that, their, their lifestyle might not lend itself to remembering to take a pill every day. 
Um, and we have more teens who are requesting IUDs as well. So I think that plays into it, and I think marketing is huge. I think marketing is really huge. Um, when they were talking about um, Yasmin, because it kept you, from, uh, it helped prevent PMS. And, and we had a lot, we still have a lot of people asking for that. Mm -hmm. So that's huge. Yeah. Does the STD and infertility contribute to, has it contributed to the reduction of teen pregnancy? We I'm betting against that. We haven't <laughs> seen that in our clinic, but that okay. doesn't mean it's not out there. Those, right. those are going to be the people who are probably not coming to the clinic, who may be walking around with chlamydia and it's, you know, with no, symptom, symptom free and it's scarring their fallopian tubes and they, you know, they may not know it for years. Mm -hmm. So we may not be seeing those people in, in, say, in the yeah. family planning services. In the, the middle teen years, I suspect that the, the odds of that are lower than, in the, say, in the, in the 20s, you know, peak fertility, after you've uh, begun uh, a sexual relationship of several years' duration. Um, what I find among teenagers and young adults is they, they tend to lump different sexually transmitted infections in their head as, as either all, like, they're, they're going to get it if they have sex, or they're never going to get it. And, and they don't tend to sort of distinguish between which are easiest to get and what are they... Um, what are they most? What are the, the the consequences of that particular one? Is it curable? Is it treatable? Um, and yet, you know, you you don't know unless your partner has been tested. You don't know what they have, and you don't know what's circulating in in the wider sexual network that you might be a part of. So, I tend to think that teenagers are not very STI savvy or fearful. That's yeah. that's a hunch. Yeah. No, I would I would definitely agree. I think with the classes that I've observed, um, sev you know, definitely they're not necessarily um, worried per se. I mean, they think it's gross, but that's about is you know that's kind of their their idea about it. And um, but you know, they definitely have a lot of questions. And I think this is kind of where you know education comes in, whether it be within the family or in the context of a school, um, learning about you know. Even the differences between what prevents pregnancy versus what prevents STDs, even that can sometimes be a little complicated for them. I mean, many people, young people, not just women, but the guys will ask, well, you know, if you sponge, you know, does it get lost? Can we ever, you know, can we ever get it back? Can we take it out with tweezers, you know? They'll ask all kinds of different questions, and so they're still really trying to understand, you know, how pregnancy and STDs and, and where do they meet and what can, you can use to, you know, uh, prevent either one. Connie, you mentioned in the response to the last question that, you know, these teens are asking for the non-condom kind of uh, birth control. Mm -hmm. I mean, at what point do you just kind of say, well, teen pregnancy, it'd be better to prevent a pregnancy than to prevent STDs with condom well, that, usage? And that's part of the message that, you know, our health educators have and also what we do in clinic. It's like, this will protect you from pregnancy, but this is not going to protect you from an STD mm -hmm. or HIV. Because they're both out there, so every like I said, everybody leaves with a bag, um, and they know how to use the condoms as well. Because there are a lot of myths around using condom use too. That's what the our teen staff teaches them how to use condoms correctly as well. Um, we probably because of the nature of working in a clinic, we see people coming in with STD scares daily, um, and I think some of it is. 
I think some of it is sex guilt, you know, that they feel guilty and fearful that they've had sex. And so we, you know, you, sometimes people are imagining that they've got things that they don't have. And that's kind of heartbreaking because it goes to the whole like healthy sexuality, you know, mm -hmm. you shouldn't feel guilty. Yeah. Well, that's a hard one, to, I think, to, uh, you know, when you're talking to teens and they're talking to you about, you know, really, tr again, this whole like, idea of, of healthy sexuality and not feeling guilty um, because, it's, you know, this discussion around pleasure and sexuality, just that's a big no-no, you know. And so where can that take place, you know, so that mm -hmm. you can make the decision to have sex or not under your own terms, your own mm -hmm. individual personal terms. And that's a really hard place, I think, to get youth to. I've seen a lot of data that shows that when it comes to teen pregnancy, a significant number of the men involved are actually adult men, not teen boys. And my question to the panel members is, is this correct in, in your, according to your professional assessment? And if so, how can we raise public awareness about this issue and really focus on those adult men who are impregnating teen girls? I tend to sort of say there, are, there is some guilt that's good. And, and there are some sexual relationships that are just plain bad. And, and, and you, you're talking about uh, a form of them which is sort of you know, a real imbalance in power. I mean, I tend to think that teenage girls and young adult women um, tend to feel like they're not in control of relationships and that they have to compete for men, etc. And men just sort of sit back and have a field day with this. Um, but yeah, I think there's, uh, there's definitive abuse of power. I don't know. I mean, there's, on average, sexual relationships between men and women will, be, will ex exhibit an age difference. Uh, marriage exhibits an age difference of a year and a half. Um, but that's not much. But we're talking more about sort of what about a 14-year-old and a 20-year-old. I mean, then you get the definitions of statutory rape, which is almost never prosecuted. Um, but even so, you've, you've, I think it's an understated problem that you bring up. Sure. What we generally see in terms of clinical services, that if, if their partner's older, they tend to be only a year or two older. Um, when, when you have a really young teen coming in who's sexually active, I mean, that's, that's kind of oftentimes a red flag in itself, a 12-year-old who's sexually active. And, you know, not always, but sometimes, often. And um, you really do want to investigate, you know, the age of the partner. And you're looking for a coercive, you know, is this a coercive relationship? Is it a statutory rape situation? Um, back in the 90s, as part of Governor Wilson's uh, initiative, he had funded, um, put extra funding into uh, the I think it was district attorney's offices to to actually for that reason to to act more actively and aggressively uh, go after adult men who were having sex with minors and I don't know what's happened with that funding but I know that that was that was a really uh, big big discussion at many conferences on the other hand you know we we make sure that the teens know what their rights are you know and okay if you're this age and, and your partner's this age this is a problem and you know we make sure that they understand that that's part of our paperwork so for those teenagers who choose to actually go through with their pregnancy and to parent and form families if you can talk a little bit about 
model programs or resources that you know about that really do a good job of supporting them? Because I think we always talk about preventing the teen pregnancy mm -hmm. for so many reasons, right? But um, what, what exists out there that supports young parents who choose to have families and, and help them be good parents and help them be like strong people in their kids' lives. So. One of the demographic changes we've seen is, you know, when you were 17 or 18 or 19, especially 18 or 19, and you were pregnant, I mean, historically, there was interest on the woman's family's part that maybe he should marry you, right? I mean, and we see that that's just not the case anymore. So one of the more, I mean, and it hasn't always been protective, obviously, influences, is a family, a marriage. Um, but that is largely disappeared. I mean, we, 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 parents tend to react negatively to sort of inclinations to marry um, before, some of us before 25, but um, certainly when you're still a teenager. But that we're, we're only a generation or two removed from the, the times when that idea was positively attractive. It didn't mean your marriage was a happy one necessarily, but it was a protective one potentially. So, but I'll punt to them on programs. The programs I know of, um, some of them are funded by the Challenge Grant, the California Challenge Grants, um, and they, they focus on a small group of girls, um, maybe 20 participants over a tw period of 20 weeks. And it's not just parenting, but it's also helping them figure out where they're at developmentally and, and to, to grow into the parent, that, the mother that they want to be, maybe not the mother that they had. Um, so the, the programs tend to be small and concentrated that I'm aware of. The, the, one of the programs I'm talking about is called um, the Young Moms Program. There's also El Nido Family Services, and they have a tremendous number of programs for, for teen moms. And they have suffered from the budget cuts as well. Um, but they've had programs to even help the, the sibling, the younger sister of the uh, teen mom, not get pregnant, because you see that as a trend. Um, and they're located here in Los Angeles, and they've got eight uh, programs all over, offices all over town. Yeah, I, would, I mean, there's not, unfortunately, there's not very many programs. Uh, I think that because we're not there yet as a society, we're still, we're still think, you know, teen pregnancy, um, you know, prevention, you know, that's a, that's a negative. And we're not quite there yet in terms of, you know, when, te when teens do, our parents, both the mother and the father, what support systems do we have in place, you know, to help them continue education and to help them, you know, better, um, you know, raise their child. We just don't have very many programs, unfortunately. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.